Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquez, a professor at the Cambridge University Judge School of Business. And today's episode features a discussion with Doug Guthrie, who from 2014 to 2019 led Apple University's efforts on leadership and organizational development in China. Over 25 years ago, Doug landed in China and spent a year biking around Shanghai interviewing factory man managers, and he published the results as an award-winning doctoral dissertation. Since then, he has had a deep engagement with the country on both academic and practical levels. He was a professor at places like NYU and Harvard Business School and served as dean of George Washington School of Business. Following his time at Apple, he became a professor and the director of China initiatives at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. Apple recently became the first company ever to reach a $3 trillion market capitalization. And as we discuss, Apple's current success is significantly due to the deep partnerships the company has in China. A very visible part of this, of course, is the impressive sales of iPhones and other products to Chinese consumers. In the last five years, about 20% of Apple sales have been in China. But as Doug emphasizes, an even bigger factor for the company's success globally is the concentration of Apple's supply chain in China. This leads to incredible profitability for the company, but also gives the Chinese government significant leverage. Doug describes how many companies, such as Apple and Tesla, who's been in the news recently about opening a showroom in Xinjiang, are essentially married to China. Doug provides a number of illustrations of how the rule of law system that we're used to in the West is very different than the rule by law system that exists in China and how the government can use policies like the cybersecurity law and labor dispatch law to extract compromises from companies. At the end of the podcast, we also discuss 
Doug's pioneering dissertation work in 1994 in Shanghai, and how from that point forward, he has been firmly convinced that it is language skills and cultural knowledge that are the essential tools for businesses interested in working in China and with Chinese companies. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Doug, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to you know diving in and understanding more about Apple, your perspectives on U.S.-China relations more generally. You know where I'd like to start actually is in regard to Apple stores in, in China. And you know I've been to so many different U.S. and global retail outlets in China, and it seems that Apple really does the best of bringing its like international presence to China in a way that is standardized really effectively. You know, a lot of the discussion we have on China Corner Office is about how companies localize, but it seems that Apple is really able to standardize its processes, training, etc. And I know that you, as the head of Apple University in China, you know, probably played a role in that. So I'd love to just start with that. So, Chris, so great to be here, and so great to be talking to you.、Um, a couple of key things just to think about. Apple has done an amazing job at rolling out their theory of customer support and customer engagement. You know, so they they very much wanted in in the company to to have this standardized view of like what an Apple store looks like, and building that in China, I think, was a fascinating thing. Now, I was a leadership development trainer. So I, I wasn't an architect of what they were doing. There were many other people who were doing those things, but we were also always trying to train about Apple culture. And I think the executives of Apple did a, an amazing job at thinking about how do you move this culture from what it looks like in the United States to what it looks like in China or anywhere else in the world. Now, one key part of that. Which I think is sort of behind your question, is they also cared about Apple culture,、mm-hmm. and so there was a time when I was brought over there to really be thinking about Apple culture and how do we train executives and and young executives and senior executives, but just executives to think about the culture of the company. And they they did an amazing job at it. Can you? Is there some like maybe I don't know examples or details that you could provide to you know understand? I mean, it's really hard to train culture, you know, in I don't know like a classroom stand up you know way. Is it, are there were there people coming to the U.S. and sort of experiencing what Apple is like? I I just love to get a good feel for for what that actually means. So let me handle this in three or four levels. So the first thing is just remember, Chris. You and I have known each other a long time, and like we've been a part of executive education world, and like we've known about corporations that build institutions like Crotonville. And sometime around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I don't know exactly what the dates were, but you know, Steve Jobs decided like he needed an Apple University. He needed something that was like really going to help people understand the culture, and so he went out and recruited one of the great thinkers in this world, who you and I both know, Joel Padolny, who was the dean of the Yale School of Management, and 
they built Apple University. But it, the interesting thing about Apple University is that they weren't built around training about business skills. They were built around culture. How do we build a company culture? And so as I understand what Joel's role was, it was, it was to build that. And he did. And Apple University became a thing. And it became a thing that we all were engaged in. And then when I left my deanship and was recruited by Joel, we tried to build that not just for the U.S., but also for China. So there was an interesting moment, and this is sort of the second phase of the answer to your question, Chris, is there was an interesting moment when when I was hired to go be the lead for Apple University in China, um, there were six Apple stores. Wow. <laughs> Not when too I many. left. <laughs> Right. And when I left, there were 52. Wow. I mean, and, and, and that that's not because of me. Like, but they, you played a role you in know, the rollout of it. Of well, well, I played a role in helping train the people. And it was, it, it was interesting. There was a moment when I, um, I, you know, I was in negotiations with Apple. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And Tim Cook was in a comms meeting at an Apple store, and it was at the Apple store in Beijing. And he, <laughs> you know, there was somebody who asked a question, which was, I thought, a brilliant question. They were like, how are you going to maintain the Apple culture and kind of continue to go forward in rolling out all these stores with your plan? And Tim said, well, we just hired this guy. And it's still in negotiations, but at some point he's going to be here and we're going to be on the ground in China. And it was sort of funny because I didn't know that I was hired yet. And so it was just like an amazing moment because I got calls from people like, is that you? <laughs> but but that was Tim Cook's and Joel Padoni's vision. Like if we're going to do this, we got to have somebody on the ground who both understands China and understands, you know, what it is that we need to do with the merging of China and Apple culture. And, and, and that became my job. Now, again, the Apple stores, you know, they started rolling those out very fast. And like by the time I left, I think there were 52 stores and they're all amazing. Yeah. My job was to help people understand Apple culture and, organizational Got culture. It. So, you know, what insights you have then on, I mean, I can see, you know, my experience in a variety of different Chinese cities is that when, after you get away from the East Coast, actually, you know, English and actually like Western ideas of customer service fall off pretty quickly. And, you know, I'd love to hear about, you know, any experience or that you've had like in an interior location, you know, they're starting an Apple store, you know, were there any special challenges? Um, you know, you know, what's actually done to actually get the staff up to speed on the standards that Apple thinks are appropriate? So, so let me answer the question in two ways. So the first is that when I arrived for Apple in China, I was very, very focused on what the political issues were. And it seemed clear that the new administration in China was going to be thinking more deeply about like what U.S.-China relations and what multinational relations were in China. 
And so that was my first project, was trying to figure out, like, okay, how do we help everybody understand this? And then there was some point, Chris, when, when I feel like the executives at Apple said, okay, Doug, we got it. We understand. And government relations has this. We got it. But then there was a second tier version of the issue, which is, but, you know, we're very good in tier one cities. So just for, I assume most of our listeners probably know this, but just, just to reiterate, Chinese cities are divided into tiers. Tier one, tier two, tier four, tier five, all the way down to tier six cities. And I got the message from some executives that we don't really understand what you framed, Chris, as the West right. or the hinterlands. Like, we don't understand these. And so our second project that we did, and I, I worked very closely with an, an Apple executive who was based in Shanghai. He's a creative director kind of person. And we, we just like went out and we just started interviewing people and just started talking to people about like, how do we understand what's happening in the hinterlands? Because all of those people were using Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, Right. Huawei. Huawei phones, like why, 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 why not Apple? And it was because we weren't there. <laughs> and so it was an, a really interesting project for me because I'm not a creative director. Brand strategy is not my thing. But it was so interesting to just do economic analysis <laughs> and just go deep and go interview people. And, you know, it uh, it was one of the best projects I've ever done in my life because it was it really got me deep into, you know, I was like sitting next to a basket maker who was having his baskets on Taobao. And it was trying to help Apple executives understand like what this means. Like, you know, and it was, it was incredible. Yeah, really interesting. So, you know, part of what you mentioned is that just Apple is not there. So, you know, opening up, you know, a flashy glass, you know, beautiful Apple store in the most high profile mall obviously says something. But like for this basket maker or any of the other folks that you interviewed, I mean, was there any sense of nationalism like there is today or any sense of like what, you know, maybe the price of the product? I mean, I'm curious what those people saying on Taobao are thinking as they're choosing a cell phone and why Apple versus Huawei, for example. Right. And, and 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 again, there's price differential in these areas, but the important thing that I wanted Apple executives to understand is that, like, yeah, you can be in tier one cities, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, Shenzhen, like we all know those, but <laughs> that that is a small portion of the population. Like, this is a population of 1.4 billion people, and most of the economic development is happening in tier two, three, four cities. And and so for me, I really wanted to help executives at Apple understand like, we need to go deep. Mm -hmm. We need to go deeper. Um, and there's a lot of smart people there, so like I can't take credit for having pushed them in those directions. But, you know, again, like, you know, they expanded from when I joined Apple there were six stores, and and then there were 52 stores when I left. They clearly were thinking about these issues. 
and even if the margins of what you can get in tier three, four cities, still the population is huge. Right. No. And so. Yeah, I, I can see that. Re- really, really interesting. Is, is there anything that stood out as far as was the, I guess, delivery or training of the personnel different in the in those locations, or was it still the same as one would get in? I don't know, Palo Alto or Shanghai uh, or, you know, name your tier three city. I assume tier two, you know, like Chengdu and Wuhan. I mean, those are more sophisticated. Uh, I mean, really, it, you know, there's probably even a bigger drop off when you get down to the tier three, tier four. So it's a good question, Chris, but of course the training was different in China than in Cupertino. And that was sort of what I tried to right. do is I, I wanted to like really customize this for China. And really think about like what, and you have to know, like most of my students when I was in that role were Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And so they, they needed to know that there was somebody who understood China and thought about China and could rip out a Chinese phrase that was a Cheng Yu. So, so it was definitely different, but we tried to customize it for China Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we also tried to customize it for China around the strategic issues that the company was thinking about. And again, just to go back to what we were just talking about, one of the best projects we did was a project we did for marketing. And then, you know, we went out into the hinterlands and just interviewed the basket maker and also a woman who was the head of uh, a, a company that was trying to compete with Nike. I mean, we, we just tried to find these people. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to customize it for China. And I think that's that's credit to Apple. Like, they, right. they tried to do that. Yeah, really interesting because, you know, my experience, and I think I've only, you know, I might have been in Chengdu in an Apple store, I can't remember, but the work may be customized to the actual individuals you, you're training, but actually the delivery at least to someone with a white face like me that walks in is, is pretty seamless to what I'd experience elsewhere. So I think that says a lot about the work that you guys had done. I want to ask, you know, so actually in the last few days, Apple has gone over 3 trillion in valuation. I mean, the first company to ever do this. And I think a big reason, you know, is China. And we've talked about this consumer success. And I think about 20% of Apple's sales over the past number of years has been to China. But another big part is the supply chain component and the manufacturing uh, component. And I'd love to hear, just maybe start very broadly, uh, maybe with an open-ended question as to, you know, can you just reflect on on sort of in some ways the power of Apple's supply chain in China? Yeah. So, Chris, it's a great question. And I just want to be very clear on this. And here I'm going a little bit off the grid because I can't speak as an Apple executive anymore. But I will just say, yes, Apple has a significant market in China, as does Tesla and other companies. But the thing that makes these companies so powerful is their management of the supply chain. I mean, it, it, this, this is the thing. Because companies like Apple, and I know less about Tesla, but I'll just extrapolate. But companies like Apple and Tesla they do a very good job of embedding people in the supply chain and helping the suppliers actually understand the technologies and the supply chain management that they're Mm -hmm. doing, right? And 
what happens then is just with any company, whether it's electronics or automobiles, you have components, modules, and final assembly, right? Most people think like, oh, Tesla, they have a factory in China, it's final assembly. No, actually it's components, modules, final assembly. And in every one of those levels, the companies that are the most innovative are helping to teach the suppliers how to run their supply chains. And they always teach multiple suppliers. And so what happens is that the suppliers become competitors against each other. And so I can just tell you, I've had multiple meetings with CEOs of suppliers of Apple, and they would say, why are we pushed to such low margins? And I'm like, well, you know, you're, you're paying for it because you want access to the expertise. And that's what everybody wants. And so here's my favorite statistic about Apple in China. So Apple controls about 35% of the smartphone market share in the world, but they take about 100 or 95% of the profit. Mm-hmm. And why does that happen? It happens because they're able to leverage their expertise to push suppliers to do what they want them to do. And then those suppliers go make their money from Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, everybody. Again, I know less about the electric vehicle world, but I guarantee you it's the same thing. I mean, Tesla got a very special deal right? when they were the first auto company that was allowed to come in as a non-joint venture. And I guarantee you there were promises made. Yeah, no, interesting. I'd like to talk a little about those uh, promises in a second, but um, but first, I want to ask about this. You know, you know, it seems like there's a lot of, in some ways, IP share sharing going on. So, you know, the these engineers are entering these factories and learning about. I mean, that's that's why they're willing to accept these very low margins because that's actually they're learning, and then, like you said, they can go and you sort of use these process for Xiaomi or you know, you know, Oppo, um, wh- whoever. Uh, what then? And the reason I'm going to ask this question is I've actually heard Elon Musk be asked, like, aren't you worried that the Chinese are going to steal your IP? And I think he said that, well, you know, if they're stealing the IP, that's actually what's going on now. That's actually what's going on tomorrow, you know, is what we know back in in the U.S. And so it doesn't really matter if, if they're actually, you know, stealing our current IP because it's, you know, that's already by definition sort of old. And so... Was, is that sort of the philosophy that Apple had, you know, that doesn't matter if the, they're able to actually, these competitors get their IP because the next generation, they're going to be doing this all over again? Well, so Chris, it, I, I think it's a, it's, a very, it's a great question, but it's a complex question. And just to, to dial back a little bit historically, I, you know, personally, I get a little upset when people talk about China stealing IP because... As you know, I mean, you're a China scholar too. China developed a lot of the great IP that transformed the world. You know, gunpowder, the nautical compass, like, you know, paper money. Like, this stuff changed the world in the 1400s. And so the idea that the world is not a global political economy just seems strange Mm -hmm. to me. Now, in today's era, when we talk about companies like Apple and Tesla, uh, I, I have a difficult sense of thinking about just this pure IP. Mm-hmm. 
because nobody's like giving away, you know, the IP of chip manufacturing or the IP of, but the the real IP is around manufacturing mm-hmm. processes, and that's what, in my view, Apple has offered to China, and it's it, it's amazing. I mean, Apple will never set up a factory in China. What they did was they took their employees who are brilliant people in operations supply chain management and they embed them in the factories of China's suppliers. And so, and and they teach and everybody learns together. And so it's hard to for me to think about this as, you know, some some commentators think about this as stealing IP. I don't think it's stealing IP. Like these are these are collaborative relationships in which people learn together. And yeah, it is the case that manufacturers and product-oriented people like Apple, and I assume it's the case with Tesla. Yeah, they teach their suppliers how to do great work, mm-hmm. but. That's, you know, that's because China has the most ingenious manufacturing supply chain system in the world mm-hmm. right now. And we all need each other. Yeah, interesting. So. That's, I think that's, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think it's probably a fairer way to, to actually think about the relationship. Um, so, so thank you uh, for that. In regard to the, you know, you mentioned China has this amazing supply chain sort of ecosystem and infrastructure. Do you think that companies like Apple and Tesla or then maybe too tied to China, you know, it's not like they can move their production elsewhere. I mean, if you mentioned it's sort of, it's about the, you know, components and modules and on down the supply chain, a variety of integration that's happening where you really can't replicate that. But then that gives China and Chinese companies and the Chinese government a really a lot of leverage. Well, it's a great question, Chris. And I think that there are three levels to the complexity of that relationship. And I just think China has tremendous leverage. The The first level, and I've heard leaders from Congress and the former president talk about like, well, companies like Apple should just move to Vietnam and or move to India. It'll all be fine. But we don't have the leverage that we think we knew for these three reasons. First is the floating population. There are 350 million people that are what we call float around the country, but they're actually moved by the government. Mm. The dispatch labor system is a tremendously powerful system in which the government moves people, the Chinese government moves people around the country to be at whatever factory needs them for seasonal production. And, you know, this is amazing. Mm. Like, it's an amazing system. And so just having 350 million people, when people talk about, like, well, we should just move our production to Vietnam. Okay, there are 95 million people that live in Vietnam. Like, it's not the entire country couldn't support what, what it is that is the production that's happening in China. And there's not a system for moving people around. The second thing is infrastructure that ties the system together. And so when people talk about, well, we should just move all our production to India, India doesn't have the infrastructure that links the states of India together the way China has developed. 
China's system of linking suppliers to final assembly factories is just, there's nothing like it in the world. And then the third piece is what, what I like to refer to as industrial clusters. So, so many different cities in China have developed their entire system around a focus on a very specific component or module. It's just a system that has been developed in, in industrial development for the localities of China that I just think have made a dramatic difference. And when you put those three things together, you, don't, you can't replicate this anywhere in the world. And so it's hard for me to imagine that a company like Apple or Tesla could leave China. Interesting. I just, I don't see it. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the labor dispatch system you mentioned. I mean, the, you know, the infrastructure, the clustering, um, you know, I think is written about a decent amount and I'm, and I'm a little, you know, I think the listeners will be somewhat aware, aware of that. Uh, but you know, this labor dispatch system you mentioned where the government is actually involved in moving the floating population, as I would think about it, you know, I don't know, Foxconn in some location, you know, Apple has a new phone coming out, you know, they need to ramp up production. So they, you know, put advertisements, who knows where, you know, the, the migrant labor is looking for advertisements would be my way of thinking that they may do it. But I guess, you know, you're saying the government is more deeply involved in this than, than I may realize. So thank you for that. And it's a great question, Chris. So the labor dispatch system is a system that is tied to moving migrant labor around the country, right? So think of it, I mean, for our American listeners, think of it as a temp labor company. Oh, okay. Right? So temp labor are these companies that basically take people who are not employed somewhere and then they just say like, oh, go work for this company for a few days or this company. So the labor dispatch system's like that. Mm. It's basically a system in which you take 350 million people and you figure out which companies, because of surges in production, are needing laborers, and we're going to move wow. them around to these places, right? So, like, just to give you, you mentioned Foxconn Zhengzhou. So Foxconn Zhengzhou is one of the main final assembly plants for Apple products. And I can't quote very clear numbers, but, you know, in my memory, if, you know, if you're just at steady state, there would be 200,000 people working on iPhone products or Apple products. But every year around September, there's a new iPhone, iPhone release and suddenly you need 500,000 people, right? So who's going to get those people there? So that's the dispatch mm -hmm. labor system. The dispatch labor system moves people and it moves people around the country and it's a very interesting system because it's a state-run system. And so people are actually moved around the country and, you know, they are actually employed by the dispatch labor system. Now, one of the things that has made it hard for foreign companies is that they've changed laws. Mm -hmm. So the dispatch labor law, which I think came out in 2015, you know, it made it harder. And so then companies have to figure out like, okay, what are we seeing based on the rule by law system? You know, there's a new dispatch labor law. What does that mean for us? What do we need to negotiate with the Chinese government to do that? That's what the rule by law system 
means. And so the dispatch labor law and this, the cybersecurity law, they're the two biggest laws mm-hmm. that have really kind of changed what companies like Apple and Tesla have to do in the world. Yeah, um, in regard to that, that's actually, you know, nice foreshadowing. I appreciate that. that's actually where I was going. Uh, next is in regard to this leverage that we have talked about that the, you know, the Chinese system in some ways, the government, CCP, you know, the, the companies have over U.S. companies and international companies that want to actually produce materials there. And, you know, the cybersecurity law is something that's in the news a little bit more in the Western news, a little, you know, a little bit more about, you know, Tesla recently, I think there were some reports about them, you know, with data security and sort of having all the data that's from China reside in China. Uh, I think there was some, some stuff reported recently on Apple too. And the fact that they're, you know, maybe the encryption keys also are relying in China. Can you say more about those laws and sort of what kind of sort of leverage in some ways they then give the Chinese government over producers like Tesla, for instance, or Apple? Yeah. And I can't speak too specifically about some details, but like, let me just speak generally to your question. So when things like the dispatch labor law come out, so the dispatch labor law, again, I can't remember the exact year, but it may be 2015, but it completely changed the ways in which dispatch labor was going to be used in China because a lot of suppliers of foreign companies were using about 50% dispatch labor. And suddenly the dispatch labor law comes out and it says you're only allowed to use 10% dispatch labor. Mm. Now, this makes the situation economically inviable because dispatch labor is cheaper, it's seasonal, you have all of these things that flow into like why it's such a beneficial system. Now, I had a number of conversations around that time with lawyers who were saying, how can we comply with this? We can't. And my answer to them was generally, that's not the point. You're not supposed to comply. Hmm. This is what's called the, you know, in the West, we live by what, what we call a rule of law system in which you have governments that create laws and then you have independent judiciaries and then you have companies and the independent judiciaries adjudicate those laws. In China, a rule by law system is not that. A rule by law system means you're supposed to be out of compliance. Mm. That's the point. And when I would talk to lawyers about this, people would say like, what, 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 what does that mean? And the answer would be, well, you're out of compliance, but you need to go figure out what the mayor of Zhengzhou wants from mm-hmm. you. So this is China's post-WTO entry. So China's now a part of the WTO, and there are certain rules. But they can create laws that make it very difficult for foreign companies to, to navigate, and then you need to go figure out what favors you need to do. Mm-hmm. That's the system. Sa- same for cy- cybersecurity. Cybersecurity law created a lot of difficulties for a lot of companies that were dealing in content in China. And again, the answer was you need to figure out what you need to do. Got it. So under our WTO, they can't ask for certain things, but if you go to, but Correct. you know, with the legal system the way it is, they have this leverage where, you know, I guess Foxconn in Zhengzhou can go to whomever Zhengzhou party secretary or mayor 
and work out a deal. And and that's one way to, in some ways, actually, they get around this dispatch labor law, but then also subvert the WTO in a way that actually sort of explicitly does not subvert it, but in spirit it does. Correct. I mean, officially, by the WTO rules, you can't have a quid pro quo for market access. But if you have laws like the dispatch labor law or the cybersecurity law that make it very difficult for foreign companies to operate, they'll have to figure out what they want hmm. you to do. And another somewhat controversial area, and this is in the news just today, you know, Tesla, it was announced they've opened up a facility in, Xin, in Yurimchi and, and Xinjiang. Uh, and I know that Apple has had some sort of, at least in the media, reported um, work in Xinjiang that is controversial. You know, what's your sense about maybe speculate about Tesla? You know, why is Tesla doing this given we know how controversial this is, you know, in, in, the, in the world today? Yeah. And, and here again, I can't talk specifically about Apple's decisions with respect to Xinjiang because I just haven't been there. And so I'm just a reader in the news. But I think the interesting situation with companies like Apple and Tesla is that they, they're married to China. Like they can't, they cannot be without China. And, and, and again, it's not just, be, a lot of people think whenever I talk, talk to executives about this, they think it's because of the market. It's not because of the market. It's because of the supply chain. The, these companies are so dependent on China because of the complexity of the supply chain and the ways that we just discussed. And and I can only speculate, but I guess like they have to be present. And so when I read the news that you're just talking about with respect to Tesla and in Xinjiang, I don't know. I can only guess that they... <laughs> There's a very clear pressure that they need to be with the Chinese government, and they need to make it clear. And so I don't have any, any deeper insight right. into Tesla than that, but that's my guess. Got it. Um, how about, I'm, I'm curious, you know, political economy more generally. I know when I talked to you back in 2014, maybe even earlier, I mean, you were one of the early people that was sort of raising alarms about the way that China may be led under President Xi, things that have become much more clear in the last few years, I think, to a more widespread set of observers. Uh, can you maybe comment a little bit on, you know, what were some of the early things that gave you pause about Xi and any thoughts about where you think things are headed given the sort of last few years of, you know, or last year really of all this crackdown on, you know, widespread set of industries, crackdown on wealthy people, focus on common prosperity, etc. Okay, yeah, so a couple of key things. You know, for, for those of us who are China watchers, we were watching what was happening in the transition from Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao to Xi Jinping. And I don't think we were so clear on how, well, everybody, I think, thought many people thought that there was going to be a, a stronger authoritarian hand. I don't think we ever predicted what was going to happen. But the thing in piecing it together now and looking at hindsight, I do think it's important to remember there were 
sort of two moments that occurred during this period. The first was that Xi Jinping was a very ambitious leader, and it was very clear that he wanted to take China to the next level, right? So it's not a coincidence that the Belt and Road Initiative, even though there were talks about the Belt and Road Initiative in 2008, it was really officially launched under Xi Jinping. And what is Belt and Road Initiative? The Belt and Road Initiative is really about China's pivot away from the West. We are not going to be dependent on U.S.-China relations. We're going to be the largest economy in the world and the leader of what they call in Chinese Nanan which means South-South relations. We are going to lead the South China Seas and Africa and the Middle East, and China is going to be the center point of this. And so, so in some ways, it was like an economic decision, but it was it, it's dramatic in in that moment. And so, when I was watching that, I started to really have a deep sense, Chris, of like there's something going on here that's that's bigger than we know. The other thing that I think is really important is I do think that the second moment, like Donald Trump being elected in 2016, um, and, and our country has been damaging to this relationship. The fact that Peter Navarro was the main negotiator for U.S.-China trade. I mean, this is a guy who wrote a book called Death by China. Like, I mean, right? I mean, just think about it. Like... And, and, and China also is rising in its sense of nationalism, not just in the government, but also among the populace. And so, like, the idea that you have somebody who wrote a book called Death by China coming over and negotiated trade, I just think it was damaging for everybody. And so I think those two things, like you have the rise of Xi Jinping and then you have Donald Trump. And so I think it's, it's been a really, really hard time I'm hopeful. I was more hopeful with the Biden administration that we'd be more back right. to engagement. But Kurt Campbell doesn't seem to talk about engagement. He seems to talk about competition. And so it's I just think we're in a in the midst of all of this. Now to go back to our earlier conversation, I actually think companies like Tesla and Apple are going to play a critical role here. We don't know what role they're going to play yet, but I just don't think we can quit China. I just th think another Cold War is going to be painful for everybody. And so we'll see. Yeah, it does seem, I mean, there's such deep economic connections both ways. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about mainly these U.S. companies that are really dependent on the China, uh, you know, supply chain, but, you know, also deep China ties in, in the U.S. too. So I'm I'm with you. I, ho I do hope that we're able to work out something. And I do think companies play a really important um, role in this. Uh, given some of the things that we've mentioned, though, about this dependency, things like maybe sharing data, uh, you know, other issues about maybe being sort of implicitly forced to, to support Xinjiang policy, you know, what's your recommendation for companies that want to do business in China? Is it, you know, go into this with an eyes wide open? You know, where do you draw the line on, on, on where to compromise, basically? It's a great question. And I'll give you two quick answers. And this is typically what I say to CEOs that want to get my advice. The first is that you have to think 
about partnership in China. And I believe in partnership, not just with Beijing, but with localities. And this is, I think, a, a, a mistake. And, I, you know, again, I have not been involved and have not heard from Elon Musk. He doesn't have my phone number. <laughs> and so it's not like I've been advising him. But the big moment things are important. But the most important thing in China is local connections. You know, and again, think about, Chris, you and I just talked about, you know, yeah, we all know the first tier cities. But what are the second and third tier cities? And these are the places that are driving economic development in China. And so every time I advise people about doing business in China, it's always about like figure out the second and third tier cities that you want to go to, develop relationships with local officials and just talk to them, talk to them and spend time. The, the second piece kind of goes the other way, Chris. And I was in a call with an executive not too long ago. And I, I was just like, we need to get back to lobbying. Mm. How many times have you picked up the phone and called Joe Biden? Like, please, 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 please. Because we need, I think Kirk Campbell is wrong. I think the the competition model is not right. Like we need to get back to a model of engagement. The engagement model was correct. Um, and so, you know, those two things, local economic development and local connections and an engagement policy and lobbying the U.S. government for that. Those are what I believe yeah, in. Makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and thank you for all those re reflections. I'd like to actually pivot a little bit in the last few minutes of our of our call and it's been great to hear about, you know, Apple, Tesla, you know, political economy, competition, cooperation, uh, et cetera, uh, in the current day. But, you know, one of the things I'm really curious to hear about that I think, you know, will be really interesting to our listeners is your early work in China. So you were a doctoral student in 1994, riding a, I think, flying pigeon bike around Shanghai, <laughs> visiting factories and talking to factory managers. I mean, this is, you know, 94, that is super early in, in the, you know, sort of Gaga Kaifeng era. So would love to hear any, like, I don't know, anecdotes or things that were, you know, surprise you now that you learned back then uh, from, from your time now, 20, 25 years ago. Thank you for that, Chris. And that's, yeah, I mean, it, it was an amazing moment for me. I mean, I spent time as a, I think like you, like as somebody as an undergraduate studying Chinese language, literature, history. And then like, I just became obsessed with understanding China's transformation in part because of the Tiananmen movement. I was just so interested in like what happened and how do we get there? And then, so, you know, I find myself to your question or your point as a doctoral student, you know, doing my dissertation research in 1994 in China. And I, w I didn't have a lot of money. And so I just was spending time riding around factories, you know, riding around on my flying pigeon to factories and like, you know, trying to get all the information that I could. And I guess one of the, th the lessons from that time well, I guess there are two. One is, it was a time when China was early in its opening up. 
And so I was able to do some of what I was able to do because there was an opening. You know, I wasn't just like going to visits that were that were arranged by my handlers. I was like able to just get on the phone and call people. And people were willing to say like, okay, come talk to us. And so it was a great moment. And it was just like this this beautiful moment of like China's opening up. But the second piece that I think was really interesting, Chris, was that, and this is what I always recommend to factory managers or, you know, CEOs who are trying to get involved in China. You got to like, respect the history and culture. So if you know the language well and if you can speak and if you can talk and you can like drop a few quips in Shanghainese, you know like I mean you've been right. there. Like you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like th th this is what gets you mileage. And it's just like w one of the interesting things about like you know cultural connection is I just think if you're going to do business in the global economy, you're going to do business in China. I mean, I, I'll, one quick story on this. I recently was just on a phone call with a, a, a CEO of a company that wanted to get medical devices shipped from Shenzhen to, to Mexico. And he was having trouble. And he asked me to help him. And so I was just on the call and they didn't introduce me. But I was like, well, who's your Chinese translator? And the guy said, well, the person in Shenzhen, she speaks Chinese very well, so we're just relying on her. I was like, you're kidding yeah. me. Yeah, You're kidding me. Really? Really, that's what you're doing? And then as I'm like on the call and listening, she's not saying the same things to her CEO that the CEO that I'm representing was saying. And so at some point I jumped in and I spoke Chinese and and they it changed the dynamic of the call because suddenly she was they were like, Oh, oh <laughs> we're we're not <laughs> and I and the guy after I, we got off the call, the guy was like, What did you do? What did you say? I'm like, dude, you just can't do that. Like you have to have people who understand language and culture. And that's what I think is like the big lesson of this is if we're all going to continue to work together, you got to have people who have, understand language, culture, political economy. And anyway. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's why, you know, all my teaching I've focused on doing business in China. And I know that, you know, your current role at Thunderbird, I mean, that's a big, you know, big focus of your work as well. Yeah. So. Well, thank you, Chris. This has been such a great conversation. And I hope I was helpful. Totally. Really, really. Thank you so much, Doug. Appreciate you being with us on China Corner Office. Always happy. Talk soon.